0: I would like to warn you that this episode of Off The Watchlist is spoiler-filled, so if you've seen the movie or you just don't care, welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Off The Watchlist, the podcast about the movies we have no excuse for missing. My name is Luke.
1: My name is Sophia. And Luke, which movie did you watch this
0: week? This week I had the privilege <laughs> and the joy and the absolute honor to watch 1938's <laughs> The Adventures of Robin Hood.
1: Okay, so my first ever exposure to this movie in any form was actually in the esteemed Looney Tunes short, Rabbit Hood, (laughs) starring Bugs Bunny. And at the end, they just briefly splice in the, welcome to Sherwood. I have to give major props to my dad because the first time I watched this movie, I was at school and I knew when that clip happened, I knew I'd seen it somewhere before. And so I texted him. I said, hey, what's the name of that? Like, where, where have I seen this before? And he responded within like 10 minutes with the name of the short. He's <laughs> <It's> like, it's <laughs> Rabbit Hood
0: from Loot. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs>
1: yeah. I watched this film for the first time in a film and music class during my first year of college. And I was able to dig up my notes from that class. So I have a lot of background from that source. So thank you, Dr. Rep Logel. Should I get into some of the background?
0: Hop on into it. I'm excited to hear all the things about this movie.
1: Okay, so as you mentioned, it came out in 1939. It is officially classified as a swashbuckler film, which I greatly enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> You've um, told
0: me before that's your favorite word.
1: Swashbuckler, yes. It's a good one. So a swashbuckler film is a sub-genre of action film, and it really deals with, You know, a lot of these classic tropes, there's sword fighting. There's usually very clear-cut morality. You know, the the heroes are very heroic. You know exactly who the bad guys are. And you characters sort of stick to their tropes. And that's a lot of fun sometimes.
0: It's so much fun. I love it.
1: (laughs) Uh, The movie stars Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. It was directed by Michael Curtis. And... Errol Flynn and Michael Curtis did not get along very well.
0: No, they did not from what I Is I read. this what
1: you were going to say? Do you this... know the reason why?
0: <laughs> yes, I do. I would like to say there was another director on the film. Mm-hmm. There were two directors. I think it was William K. Keeley, I think. Or Kinsley like... or something like some that. Something like that. Yeah. Errol Flynn and Michael Curtis, they did not get along on this movie. But they did work on many others together. Mm-hmm. Um, But would you like to say what happened?
1: Are you thinking about the fact that Errol Flynn married Curtis's ex-wife? I am not. I'm thinking about a separate incident.
0: Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, no.
1: And then they made this movie together.
0: I'm thinking about how there's a scene later on in a sword fight. And Michael Curtis told the person that was fighting Errol Flynn to remove the safety point from the sword.
1: Oh, right, right. And right. Errol
0: Flynn got stabbed.
1: <laughs> and he asked, Probably because he married <laughs> Michael Curtis' ex-wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he, he got stabbed. And asked the other actor, "He's like, why isn't your safety on?" And the other actor was like, "Oh, Michael over there told me to take it off for the realism." Errol Flynn climbed up onto the the stand where Michael Curtis was. <laughs> started choking him and was yelling in his face, is this real enough for you? <laughs> Man, the, the 1930s, uh, they were a different time. There
1: were like 10 people in Hollywood. And
0: they... <laughs> <laughs> they all hated each other, but had to work together. Yeah.
1: Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland actually appeared in nine films together because, again, there were 10 people in Hollywood. Uh, this is the third of those nine films. Uh, although some people only say that they had eight films together because in the last one they didn't actually have any scenes together they just appeared in the same movie let's see another thing about errol flynn is that he was one of the inspirations for the appearance of flynn rider of wow, Tangled really? fame mm-hmm.
0: wait okay now that you say that i see it
1: yeah yeah and that's also where they got
0: the first name flynn. oh yeah do, 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 that do. makes so, so much sense watching errol flynn's performance and we're gonna get into his performance because mm-hmm. he's awesome yeah watching his performance i kept thinking of wesley from the princess bride yeah which is funny because
1: he's in robin hood men and tights
0: he's in yeah. mel brooks film robin hood men and tights also as robin hood which i think his performance takes a lot from this movie yeah but i kept thinking of just the general cockiness of wesley in that movie in mm-hmm. the princess bride it definitely rolled over from this character
1: definitely yeah so my last just real Quick fun fact is that Alan Hale, who plays the role of Little John in this movie, actually played that role three times. He was Little John in the 1938 movie. He was also in the 1922 rendition of Robin Hood and in 1950s Rogues of Sherwood Forest.
0: 28 years of the same character. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And actually, I don't know if there's an official record of this, But it's thought that he had the longest streak of playing the same character until Rocky.
0: Oh, really? Mm
1: -hmm. All right. I also wanted to touch on the Hays Code, or as you've explained to me, it's known as just the code in film circles. The Code was instituted during the Depression, as I understand it, because even though movies were sort of being marketed, I suppose, as as an escape from the troubled times of the day. But obviously people didn't really have much free money to to be spending recreationally. So ticket sales dropped in the early, early days of Hollywood. They just plummeted. So studios essentially just really wanted to avoid further hurting the revenue by portraying anything that might be considered offensive or disturbing, anything that could drive viewers away. So they sort of collectively agreed to be bound by a set of rules, which were laid out by the Hayes Code, and it specified many subjects that were either to be treated with caution or avoided entirely. That came about, I believe, 1934 is when it was really, I think so, yeah, firmly being enforced. It was officially dissolved in '68, which is when it was replaced with the modern letter rating system that yeah, we have the today. The MPAA, Motion yeah. Picture
0: Association, um, code for grading movies, which also has changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's worth noting that the The code didn't just go away overnight. It was slowly chipped away at for years. Yeah. Especially by movies like Robin Hood and other films that pushed aspects of it.
1: Yeah. Robin Hood is sort of included in that era of the code being a very prominent part of filmmaking, but still being tested whenever it could be. And... Warner Brothers in particular was pushing the limits of what it could say politically at this time. I mean, some some studios were experimenting with different types of taboo content, but but Warner Brothers was really getting as political as they could. And, and I think actually at one point they were investigated uh, during World War II for pushing political stances that the U.S. government hadn't publicly committed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so Robin Hood includes... A lot of veiled references in support of the New Deal. You see that as they give their collected money to King Richard in the faith that it'll be used for the good of society and benefit everybody in turn and et cetera, things like that. That's a little bit of the background of what was going on in Hollywood at this time and how you can see that reflected in Robin Hood because, again, this, this movie did come out really in, in the height of, of that code being in place. I also think the score is really interesting in this movie. I'm sort of the the one here with the, the musical background. And it's got a very classical Hollywood score to it. It was written by Eric Korngold. The classical Hollywood scores were influenced very heavily by a couple different musical traditions. A lot of those composers coming out of Europe had classical training. I say Classical, just <laughs> yeah. not not referring to the era, but but in classical music training in the Romantic era, which was characterized by you know big symphonies, all these sweeping strings. melodic lines, lots of strings, the introduction of brass for for one of the first times or or widespread brass, you know lots of dissonance used to create these extremes of tension and release. It's very emotion driven, and then a lot of American composers at that time were working either in vaudeville or in theater, which is obviously very story driven, very narrative focused. And so you have this emotion of the romantic period and all these narrative aspects of vaudeville and of theater. And you can see how those would sort of come together perfectly to create the very first movie scores. Yeah, and uh, Korngold himself, I believe, came from an opera background. So he was one of those Mm. more classically trained European composers.
0: The soundtrack is awesome in this movie. The movie opens with title cards and the soundtrack behind it, backing mm-hmm. it, and it just, from the very first second, I knew I liked the movie just because yeah. of how, <laughs> how wonderfully charming the score was. Mm-hmm. It makes all the difference in the world. I'm sure before this, that wasn't the Robin Hood feel. Just what a fantastic embodiment of theming and culture and world that you create with this score. It's so f- mm-hmm. fantasy-filled, but also like medieval and yeah. oh, it's just so great.
1: Yeah, that's something that I liked right away about this movie as well and something that I like about a lot of old movies is that they have overtures <laughs> to yeah. go with with the the title cards and I feel like uh, unless it's a film adaptation of a musical that, you know, already has an overture most movies today don't and i really feel like that's something we're missing <laughs> i really i really like the experience of you know just sitting through an overture while these title cards show you the credits and a lot of times they're hand drawn or or i just yeah. really enjoy that it's it's such a beautiful and exciting musical score and to to see all like the different elements that came from all these different places to make early Hollywood music what it was. I I find that really, really interesting.
0: Absolutely. All
1: right, so that's all I have for background. Are you ready to jump into a summary?
0: Absolutely. I would love to. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to start off the summary section with just a quick fact about the director of the film, Michael Curtis, We've talked about him a little bit and his conflicts with Errol Flynn, but it's also worth mentioning his quality as a director because he directed a lot of very famous and iconic movies, probably the most well-known of which was Casablanca. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, he um, was a big-time director, one of the biggest in the world at the time.
1: Again, only 10 people in Hollywood.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 10 people in Hollywood. He wasn't the initial director. As we touched on, there was another director on the film. They did not co-direct it, though. You might be deceived by the opening credits into believing that they did because it says directed by Michael Curtis and William Keeley. But William Keeley directed the beginning of the shoot, and then he had to walk for certain conflicts he had with Warner Brothers, and they assigned Michael Curtis to to do it and so if you're actually watching the movie a lot of the scenes that take place in the forest are Keely scenes and a lot of the studio set scenes and combat scenes and stuff like that that's all Curtis.
1: And wasn't there a thing where Keely insisted that they go up to Chico to shoot all the Sherwood scenes and you know he got a lot of pushback because it was going to be like fall and winter there and it was a really long commute and there was, you know, a perfectly good forest right nearby that they had used in the other yeah. Robin Hood movie. And he's like, no, we have to go to Chico. And I think that ended up putting them at least a couple of weeks behind schedule. And they got there and it was sure enough, it was raining and it was autumn. So they had to like spray paint a bunch of the trees green. It yeah, was just a I was going to mention
0: that when we got to the forest <laughs> section, they had to paint the trees green to make them feel more like England. That's oh, my bizarre.
1: gosh. Achilles, like we made this choice, we have to stick with (laughs) my pride.
0: There's a little bit of also visual information that's worthwhile mentioning on before jumping into the summary because it helps you understand the aesthetic and the feeling of the movie a bit more. Sure. And that is that this was not only the first Warner Brothers studio film but one of the first films ever to be shot entirely on three-strip Technicolor film. So this is a 1938 movie in full color, and I just so, so love the color of this movie. There's so few movies today that are bold enough to be colorful. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a movie and you watch a movie in the theaters, you see it all the time. I mean, so many modern blockbusters and even indie films are very desaturated and, and low-key, and it's a very cinematic look. You see it a lot in Marvel movies, for example, where the colors are all toned down. It makes it look real and gritty because, of course, mm-hmm. the world isn't always super saturated. Sometimes yeah. it is, and when it is, we love to take pictures of it and post it on Instagram. <laughs> but... Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> but the three-strip Technicolor film process in... This movie is just so bright and colorful. The costumes are so bright and colorful. Everything is just so wonderful to look at. And it really creates this whole feeling of fantasy and innocence and romance that just perpetrates the whole movie.
1: At this time, weren't there only 11 cameras in existence that could shoot on Technicolor and they used all of them in this movie? All 11. (laughs) And they had to borrow them every day and return them every night. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's 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 weird. If you follow the evolution of cameras throughout film history, it's very interesting to kind of track how many are in existence just in general, because during this time, there were only 11 Technicolor film cameras and they had to use them all. And then when IMAX became a thing, there were only a certain amount of IMAX film cameras. And Christopher Nolan loved to use all the IMAX film cameras in his movies. And stuff like that. You have 3D cameras eventually. All these different things that had different functions. And there were only like 10, 15 of them in existence at certain periods of time.
1: I suppose upon thinking about it, it makes sense to me that that there's, you know, certain functions that only specialized cameras can perform. But it still sounds weird to me to say there were only (laughs) 11 cameras in the world that could shoot in color. Yeah. And they had to use... Every single one of them
0: <laughs> Especially now that we can do the exact same thing on our phones that are in our pockets all the time. Oh true. It's like that's crazy to think about it. there was a time where that ability was just are you, you're looking at me like you're about to say okay boom, okay, boom. boom. <laughs> 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 I could see the words forming <laughs> in your mouth before you even said them. The movie starts with Richard the King of England, Richard the Lionheart. He's beloved by all his people. He is captured on his way back from the Crusades, which, of course, this movie takes place in the year 1191. And at this point, the Crusades were winding down, but still very, very relevant. It's really actually very interesting, the political stance this movie takes on the Crusades, because it does come to condemn them several times towards the end. Even Richard himself does.
1: That's not necessarily something I would have expected to come out of the 30s.
0: Yeah, especially you mentioned the code. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stuff in the code protecting against offense from the church.
1: Yeah, it said like, don't
0: insult the clergy,
1: clergy. don't mock. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that there would be such an open and honest look at some of the atrocities that were committed during the Crusades in 1938. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, with Richard taken captive, it's left to his younger brother, Prince John, and a couple other lords throughout England to rule the kingdom in his stead. And all these guys are just the slimiest people in existence. They all have disgusting thin mustaches. <laughs> they all have weird logo goatees.
1: And one of them is named Sir Guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just really unfortunate for him. (laughs) It really is. Apologies to any listeners named Guy.
0: (laughs) So the aforementioned Sir Guy, along with Prince John, King Richard's little brother, they assume power. It's it's a little unclear. Prince John is not king yet. He's not even regent at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He is just someone in power who is... Interim. ...acting under the king's authority with no actual authority.
1: Interim king.
0: Interim king, yeah. <laughs> Normally, I'm, I'm very into English medieval history myself.
1: Oh, really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've told you about how much I love the War of the Roses oh, and stuff right. like that. Right, right. The st- structure of kingship in England at this time would be if the king was out of power or missing or in some way incompetent, unable to rule, there would be a regent who would rule in his stead. And that was appointed by the king. Mm -hmm. And so this was often a way for people to grab power. If the regent was ambitious, they could poison the king or something like that to assume the king's power in his stead. Prince John is not the regent, but we'll see throughout the story the steps that he takes to get power Mm -hmm. more and more. He sucks. He's terrible. He's the bad guy. He's got a horrible haircut.
1: Yeah, he does. He's like that guy. What's that guy? Humperdinck. He does look Prince like Humperdinck. Prince Humperdinck. <laughs>
0: At the beginning here, however, Prince John's plan is pretty mundane. He's just heavily taxing the Saxon population in England, which is obviously not murder yet, <laughs> but he is targeting a certain group of people and only taxing them. In, in this period in time, there were the Normans and the Saxons, They were the two groups of people that populated England, or primarily populated England. And they really did not like each other very much. The Normans looked down on the Saxons quite a bit because of their different ways of life. For instance, in combat, you can even just tell, the Normans were knighted and on horseback and wearing armor, and the Saxons were kind of just farm workers who would fight on foot and in the fields. More
1: guerrilla warfare. More
0: guerrilla warfare. And Prince John is a Norman, We'll find out pretty soon that our our good friend Robin Hood is a is a Saxon. With Richard gone, Prince John is able to enact these taxes and this oppression of the Saxon people in England. He says it's to raise money to pay the ransom to get Richard out of jail, but it's actually just to get him rich with his friends. Yeah. Yeah. As time goes on, we start to see that this oppression worsens more and more against the Saxons the Saxons are very very put down they're like beaten and robbed and there's a whole montage at the beginning while this is happening the plot sort of instigates and this is our introduction to Robin Hood with our, our, our pal Sir Guy <laughs> riding <laughs> around and he has been tasked with hunting the king's deer and bring it for him for dinner and so he's riding through the woods he's got his entourage of guards he spots a deer he's about to kill it and then some Saxon shoots it before he does. And it's his kill.
1: Finders keepers. F- finders keepers. <laughs> Losers weepers, Sir Guy. <laughs> Come on, Sir Guy.
0: Sir Guy is peeved about this. He does not like that. <laughs> He's a little miffed. <laughs> Sir Guy is just a tiny bit miffed that, that this random fellow would do such a thing. This fellow's name is Mush, by the way.
1: What a name.
0: <laughs> so once... Mush shoots this deer, the king's deer. Sir Guy, being an envoy of the king, pronounces him to be executed for the crime of hunting and killing the king's deer. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: You're, Let's you're move so on. many dad what jokes. What happens next?
0: <laughs> Sir Guy is about to take Mush to execute him, and out of the blue, Runs Robin Hood. He actually shoots the mace out of Sir Guy's hand with an arrow because he's so cool. That's hardcore. And Robin Hood kind of gallops up with his friend, who I don't know the name of. Uh, I don't think they say it very much in the the movie, but he just looks like Robin Hood, but he's wearing red. Is
1: that Will Scarlet? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes.
0: Thank you. You he, can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's Will Scarlet because he wears red,
1: <laughs> and he has. A will of his own. That's how you can tell. <laughs> Man, you and then what happens? <laughs> and then what happens? What happens next?
0: <laughs> so Robin Hood rides up with Red Robin Hood. And... <laughs> and <Yum>. they <laughs> They approach Sir Guy and basically tell him, no, you're not going to kill my Saxon friend Bush here. And... Mush is very grateful for Robin Hood, for saving his life. Robin Hood pulls an arrow on Sir Guy, and Sir Guy runs away. And Robin Hood jumps down, and Sir Mush pledges himself to Robin Hood. Robin Hood is actually, his title is Sir Robin of Loxley, which is his land. So he is a lord. Yeah, We go to the castle of Nottingham and Prince John is there and he's having a banquet and all his, his slimy old pals are there to attend, including Sir Guy. They're all discussing this Robin Hood and how he's a nuisance and how he's annoying and how he's so much better than everyone else, but why isn't he on our side? And out of the the blue walks in Robin Hood with a deer on his shoulders <laughs> and he... <laughs> you hear commotion outside, and like the doors open, and you see Robin Hood beating up people with the deer carcass. And you're like, Oh my gosh! And he walks in, and Prince John is like, Let him in, let's see what he has to say. And he walks in, he chucks the deer carcass down in front of Prince John. He's like, Here's your deer. And he's just so cocky and clever and witty. And the great thing about it is that you never feel like Robin Hood is in danger. Which in, in a lot of movies, it's not a good thing when the it feels like there's not many stakes. But for this specific movie, it just feels so warm and easy and fun to watch because the whole time you know the hero is in control. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. I love that, that. Yeah. That mood.
1: I think that's a hallmark of the genre as well.
0: Absolutely. The swashbuckler genre. Yeah.
1: This scene, I think has one of my favorite moments from the movie (laughs) and it's uh so lady marion i believe is introduced at this banquet she's you know just a, a noble lady in this court but as robin is talking about something or other he's kind of declaring his opposition to to prince john's rule he's you know saying that he's going to to defend the the saxon people and she looks at him and she says why you speak treason and he says oh fluently Yeah, that's such a great line. I love that line.
0: There there's oh. a lot of those little asides mm-hmm. that Robin Hood has in this movie mm-hmm. and Errol Flynn nails the performance you got to laugh at what he says. He's so perfect.
1: Yeah. Also, another fun fact, just semi-related to this, this whole set with the Nottingham castle and surrounding grounds, they meticulously replicated the actual castle in Nottingham. And this set took up a third of the budget.
0: Really? Yeah. Really? Yep. I was about to talk about the sets because this is the perfect time to go go into ahead. This set is used a couple times throughout the movie. And there's something about the way these sets are made or something like that that just feels so charming and lovable. You're watching the movie and you know the buildings are fake and you know they're on a soundstage and especially when they show like wide shots of the castle and you can tell it's a matte painting where they paint a backdrop and superimpose it into the background of a shot to make it look like there's a fake background you can tell these things are fake but it's so so classic hollywood and you gotta love it i was watching and i was thinking man if this movie was made today you could do things on such a grand scale huge throne rooms and walking the streets of nottingham village with all these peasants lying around and guards and shining armor on the 400 foot tall walls of the city you could do all this kind of stuff but they couldn't do that at this time and it really adds to just the charm of this movie it makes it feel so pure
1: yeah and i one thing i kind of like about especially these old fantasy movies or period pieces made in the 30s to, to 50s is sometimes say with like the costuming or the sets or something, you can look at it and see how it was made or see how it's fake, and and you just get this glimpse of like, oh, these are all just people putting on a story. And I kind of like when those little moments when you can choose to see through the facade and then slip right back into the, you know, the suspension of disbelief.
0: Totally, this I movie. I just enjoy doing that. <laughs> yeah, this movie feels a lot like a bedtime story.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: As you mentioned. Robin is kind of bad-mouthing Prince John during this this banquet. He says he's going to fight for equality for the Saxons during this time. And in return, Prince John is going to execute him. Basically, he commands his men to capture him. Robin Hood escapes, and on his way out the door, Prince John declares that he's an outlaw now, and he no longer has any titles or land or... Lordship, and he is on the run officially. So this is the end of the inciting incident heading into the second act of the story where now Robin Hood and his pals Will, Scarlet, and Mush are (laughs) heading into the Sherwood Forest where they're going to set up camp and assemble our good old merry men. (laughs) This is the part of the movie where we begin to sort of collect the ensemble that everyone knows when you talk about Robin Hood. When you mention Robin Hood, you have John the Little, you have the Friar, you have all these different characters that are surrounding him that make him Robin Hood. And this is his first interaction where Robin flees into the forest away from all of Prince John's guards and he runs into this guy named John the Little.
1: I have to say I've never heard him referred to as John the Little.
0: So he runs into John the Little or Little John, depending on what you want to say, on a log over a river and he's with will scarlet at the time robin is and he sees little john standing there with the with his quarterstaff and robin decides that this is going to be a fun little challenge and he's going to fight little john on this bridge and so he runs over to a tree and cuts off a branch and makes himself a quarterstaff and he hops down onto the log with little john and he's like i'ma fight you and little john is like all right and they fight for a brief bit of time. I love in this scene, Will Scarlet sits, like, by the river, pulls out a mandolin, <laughs> and just starts playing a battle song for them to fight, too. And in the middle of the fight, Little John, like, gets slapped by Robin's quarterstaff, and he's like, play something a little bit faster. This is too slow. <laughs> Eventually, Little John beats him. Robin falls into the lake, and he gets out, and they're laughing together, having a good time. And... He tells Little John who he is, and Little John swears himself to be Robin's general. I, too, select
1: my friends by who can
0: best me in combat. <laughs> <laughs> so over a period of time, tons of people are joining the Merry Men and becoming this squad of outlaw, fighters, thieves, whatever. And Robin gives a big speech where he stands up on a rock in the middle of the Sherwood Forest. and That's he a fake rock. Is it really a fake rock? It's a fake rock. <laughs> a really fastback from <laughs> Sophia. Robin stands on a fake rock and tells all these different peasants that they are fighting for freedom and for equality. And he actually has a very interesting line here where he says, it's injustice I hate, not the Normans. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> and that's it's a very, very moral thing. It kind of ties in one aspect of this movie that contributes a lot to the charmingness of it is how black and white the morality is the bad guys are very clearly bad and robin's morals are perfect of course that's not at all realistic but it is part of this fantasy but he has all these peasants swear this oath to rebellion basically that they're going to in classic robin hood fashion steal from the rich and give it to the poor And all this for the sake of justice, especially in the name of King Richard, the Lionheart. Another person they encounter and recruit is the friar, Friar Tuck. He is sitting by a lake, falling asleep with a mutton chop in one hand and a fishing pole in the other. And living the life. Living the life. (laughs) (laughs) And Robin and his gang come upon him sleeping. Robin steals the mutton chop. Catches a fish with the fishing pole, puts the fish in Friar Tuck's lap, starts eating the mutton chop, and then wakes him up by poking him with the sword.
1: What kind of power move is
0: that? (laughs) And then the friar wakes up, he's like, Give me my mutton chop back. And Robin's like, No. (laughs) And he just eats the mutton chop in front of him. And then. Finders, keepers, sleepers, weepers, Friar Tuck. (laughs) And then they fall into the river and engage in this sword fight where you find out that this is Friar. This like short little squat dude is actually like a master swordsman. Yeah. And they engage in this big fight and it's sort of neither Robin nor the Friar win. But it's basically revealed that the Friar is a Richard loyalist and they all become friends. And the Friar joins his crew as the priest of the Merry Men. So Robin, with his newfound crew of generals and friends, decides it's now time for an ambush. He's going to start his, his, I guess, rebellious campaign or whatever. Sure. Sir Guy and a couple others, including the Sheriff Nottingham, who is again and again emphasized as just a horrible coward, (laughs) they (laughs) are out searching for Robin because he's an outlaw. And Robin and his men are devising this plan to ambush and take them captive. And there's this wonderful scene where they all march very happily (laughs) into the woods, (laughs) climb some trees, and lay some netting down to capture everyone. This
1: is my favorite part. I think this is my singular favorite part of the movie because it's this group of guys... All just like trotting through the woods, and they've got these nets and things to lay the trap w- with them. and The music is just so jaunty, and they're clipping along, swinging their arms. It's like, bum, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. So, like, here we go to set our trap. <laughs> I just love that moment.
0: So they're like swinging their arms <laughs> as they walk, and they're huge smiles on their faces. Oh
1: boy, gonna set a trap! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, can't
1: wait to catch this guy, <laughs> the sir guy. <laughs>
0: So they set this trap where they all climb into the trees and they're gonna jump out of the trees onto the people as they they go underneath. <laughs> it's kind of kind of a primitive plan when you think about it. <laughs> because they're like, let's go into the trees, and then when they ride beneath us, we'll just kind of jump down. I wanna hear
1: the pitch meeting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they do so and it works perfectly naturally. And they take captive a lot of these guys, including the sheriff and Sir Guy and Marion. And they have this big banquet in the middle of the woods where Marion Sir Guy, and the sheriff are their guests of honor and they dress them up in these rags, basically, saying, look, now you're as poor as we are. And Robin takes Marion out and tries to explain to her why the Saxons aren't all that bad, because she has this pre-informed prejudice against them that all Saxons are dirty and evil and the Normans are the best.
1: Do we know Marion's background, like how she came to be associated with with this party
0: all we know is that at the end of the movie Richard mentions how she is his ward which basically a ward in medieval times there were a couple ways to become a ward either you lost a war and had to give one of your children to the opposing kingdom wait what basically that sucks it was a ritual that was put in place where kings and their rebellious duchies if, like, a duchy rebelled from the king and the king won, the duchy would have to forfeit a child to the king so the king would have them in their household. And honestly, they lived good lives. They were raised in the palace and sometimes on equal footing with the king's own children. This yeah, was but two... still, I
1: mean, you're using your kids as political pawns. I hate that. This
0: is the medieval times. So it's either she was a ward of war or it's also possible that a powerful person in the kingdom talks to the king and asks if their child can be the king's ward to either get a better education or to have better prospects in marriage or a lot of things like this. Mm. There were different opportunities provided to people who, especially the king's ward, were in that circle. And so Richard mentions that she's his ward. Who knows whose child she is, but probably probably means that she is the child of some powerful, powerful lord. I see. Okay. So Robin takes Marion around the camp and tries to convince her of the Saxons being human, and she rebuffs him all the way until he takes her to see a family of people who have been beaten by the Normans. And he apologizes for having to show her that, but tells her that this is how the Saxons live, and she begins to see things his way after that. Because, like any normal person, she sees suffering and feels bad about it. Mm-hmm. After the banquet... Robin and his men let our antagonists go.
1: That's how you know they're the good guys.
0: Yeah, they basically say, like, hey, you can leave now, and he tells Sir Guy to thank Marion for his life. Once they get back to the castle and talk to Prince John and tell him everything that happened, the cowardly sheriff comes up with this big scheme to lure Robin into the daylight where they can capture him, basically. And his big scheme is very famously he's going to hold an archery contest. And Sir Guy is like, dude, he's not stupid enough to just come to an archery contest. We're gonna
1: have a bake sale.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the sheriff is like, no, he's at he's not stupid enough to come to the archery contest, but he totally is cocky enough to come to the archery contest. Yeah. And he's right, he is.
1: Well, you forgot to mention that I think the sheriff clocks something going on between Marion and Robin.
0: (laughs) Yes. The sheriff notices that something is... something is sparking a little bit there. And he says, (laughs) the winner of the tournament will be presented a golden arrow by Marion herself. And this is what's gonna get Robin to the tournament. And everything goes perfectly for their plan. They host this tournament and in comes Robin with his dudes. And there's a shot of Robin walking up and he's got all his posse around him. And they're like, you know, this is a trap, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And they're like, why why are we doing this? This is stupid. And he's like, well, Marion's giving out the golden arrow. Because
1: I'm Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm Robin
0: Hood. And so famously, there's a shoot off where all these great archers line up and Robin Hood wins it famously by splitting the arrow in the bullseye so that he can get max points. I have a fast fact about this. Sure, sure, sure. The sound effect of Robin's arrow hitting the target is actually Ben Burt, who's the the sound designer for Industrial Light and Magic, the organization behind all the sound effects for Lucasfilm, specifically Star Wars. This is his favorite sound effect, and it's used in every Star Wars movie. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool.
1: I yeah, I read that in doing my research and I I started trying to think of where it might be be, but I, I don't know. I'll have to just keep my ears open, I Yeah, suppose. I'm
0: sure they twisted it and demented it into some sort of sci-fi sound effect somewhere, uh-huh. but it's it's interesting how they're able to use these kind of <laughs> effects in different movies.
1: I love that this guy has a favorite sound effect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ben Bird is such a fascinating guy. He's, he's so cool. I can't even think of having created so many iconic sound effects, like mm. the lightsaber or yeah. the TIE fighter or whatever. Anyways, once he wins the tournament prince john arrests and captures robin and when you're watching the movie you're kind of like wait you knew this was going to happen didn't you have like a contingency plan but not really robin just kind of tries to run and they grab him and they arrest him and then prince john slaps him a couple times and then they bring him to the dungeons and so it like doesn't really go perfectly
1: but he won and that's the important part (laughs) but he, but
0: he, he won and he's satisfied with winning But at this point, Marion, who is very upset that she was using this scheme, she goes to the Merrymen and she tells them that she wants to help them free Robin from captivity. They organize this whole plan where it's a little confusing, but they're about to hang Robin and basically they wait till the last second and then all the Merrymen jump out and like just attack everyone it's once again their plans are not they need a strategist they really do need someone who knows what they're doing to to plan these things out but they succeed naturally and robin escapes and robin climbs marion's tower and gets to the top window and she's like bruh i just freed you why are you here and he's like I love you. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of admit their love to one another, and then Robin is like, you want to marry me? And she's like, nah. no. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she basically says she's going to be of better service to the Saxon cause as a spy in the castle. That's her argument. And he's like,
1: yeah, all right, I respect it. They could theoretically still get married. That to me sounds like an excuse, <laughs> Marion. <laughs>
0: Well, she needed a little more time than like, yeah, three minutes, fair. four that's minutes. Fair. You know? <laughs> yeah. First kiss. Let's marriage. give
1: her all the agency she can have because she doesn't have much of it in well, this movie.
0: <laughs> that's actually something I wanted to, to mention was when we get there and the prospect of marriage is brought up again, she's actually given quite a bit of agency in that scene. We'll talk about it when we get there. Okay. But it's interesting. While this is going on, King Richard returns to England. We it's never really explained how he got out of captivity but he just shows up. He's, he, he's escaped somehow, and he is in disguise. He's supposedly heard about Prince John and his sees for power, and so he's in hiding. And King Richard goes to a tavern pub thing and is spotted by the Bishop of Nottingham. And the Bishop of Nottingham sees him, runs away, and goes to report it to Prince John. Prince John is like, How did he get out? Okay, I'm gonna murder him and sends a guy <laughs> to kill him. Marion overhears this though and runs to her room to write a letter to send to Robin. And while she's writing it, there's a knock on her door and it's Sir Guy asking to come in. And for, there's a fireplace right behind her, but she decides mm. to put it in her like jewelry case. And I was like, Come on, Marion, oh, it's so easy. No. But Sir Guy comes in. Finds the letter and sentences her to death. Another little twist here is that it's hinted several times, not very subtly, that Sir Guy also has a crush on Marion and is a little bit jealous of Robin Hood because she likes him and not Sir Guy. Marion has a housemaid, however. Her name is Bess. And when Marion was captured in the woodland grove earlier, there was like a, <laughs> there's a very weird scene where Bess is on horseback and she's walking alongside Mush. And Mush is like, this is the first time I've ever been on a walk with a lady before. And she's like, Ever? And then she laughs at him.
1: (laughs) Nerd. (laughs)
0: She's like, Come on, loser, you never held hands with a girl. And and he's like, No. And they uh they walk away. And basically it's revealed in this scene. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's revealed in the scene that ever since that moment they've been having a secret love affair. And Best tells Mush that Prince John has sent a knight named Sir Malbeat to kill Richard. And without much time to lose, Mush just takes off and he's going to find Sir Malbeat. And he chases him down and once again jumps out of a tree onto him. <laughs> I don't know what it is with them jumping out of trees. But he jumps onto the tree. They fall into a lake and they have like a little skirmish and... Sir Malbeat is killed but Mush is badly injured. As this is going on King Richard and his knights who are with him are wandering the woods looking for Robin because they've heard about this guy Robin who's rebelling against the sitting king his brother Prince John. On the way Robin shows up jumps out of a tree as people tend to do in this universe and meets king richard at the time he doesn't know that this is king richard king richard kind of disguises himself he's testing robin's loyalties to see if robin is really loyal to the king robin offers to house richard and his his men once he finds out that they claim to be supporters of the true king king richard as this is going on will scarlet robin's man finds mush all injured on the lakeside. he's a little bit bloodied up but As much as could be in the code era of Hollywood. And (laughs) he carries him back to Robin where Mush says that there was an assassin sent to kill King Richard and that King Richard was in England. And because of this, that Prince John is going to try and get crowned king. And so this sets off Robin's fury and he's like... We have to find King Richard. You take your men, go through the towns. You take your men, go through the taverns. And we had to find him and protect him, make sure he's somewhere safe. And King Richard is right there and he's like, hello. <laughs> because of this, he reveals himself as the king. Robin and all his men bow to him. And they decide that they are going to invade the coronation of the soon-to-be King John of England. They are going to dress up as monks, capture the bishop, and threaten him at knife point to walk them into the throne room. So they do so, and like all their plans, it works perfectly. They come in, the bishop comes before the king, is about to crown him king, and then Richard rips off his monk cloak and is like, actually, hello. And a big fight ensues. The main battle in this sequence is Sir Guy versus Robin. There's a big fight that kind of spans across all of the sets that they have. They go into the dungeons and then into Marion's room in like a mm-hmm. couple couple spots. Marion is being held captive at this point, though, because she is charged with treason. And Robin's goal is to find her. And so during this big fight with Sir Guy, they work their way down to the dungeons. There's a, a great line in this scene while they're fighting where Sir Guy is on. Top of the stairs, looking down at at Robin, and Robin is pinned beneath a candlestick platform thing, and he's lying there. And Sir Guy is like, "Do you know any prayers, my friend?" And Robin says, "I'll say one for you." <laughs> and Sir Guy tries to cheat. It's very reminiscent of The Princess Bride with the six fingered man. Sir mm. Guy tries to cheat and pull a knife at him and execute him that way but Robin sees it avoids it and then stabs Sir Guy thus ends the tragic tale of Sir Guy he runs into Marian's room finds her there frees her and they return to the throne room to find that Prince John has been subdued by King Richard and everything is as it should be in kind of conclusion of the story there's all of these resolutions King Richard is like, thank you, Robin Hood, for saving my kingdom and for stopping my little brother from doing brother things. What can I do for you? And it really shows Robin's nature, and he's like, I want my men to be free. I don't want them to face oppression, and I don't want them to be judged for their crimes under the rule of King John. And King Richard's like, all right, that's all good. Go for it. And then he's like, can I do anything for you, Robin Hood? (laughs) And Robin is like... well, well, you know, and he kind of looks over at Marion. And this is the part where I wanted to talk about Marion's agency a little bit because King Richard turns to Marion and is like, what would you like to do? Right. And she is like, I want to marry him. And he offers Robin Hood Marion's hand. Richard turns to celebrate with all the men. He has Robin kneel before him, takes out the sword, restores his title, makes him Earl of... Nottingham, which was Sir Guy's castle. So, and Sherwood. And Sherwood. So he's lord of the forests and of Sir Guy's castle. So get Heck wrecked yeah. Sir Guy. <laughs> and he commands him to, as his first act, marry Lady Marion. And everyone cheers and applauds and surrounds Robin. When the crowd disperses, it's revealed that Robin and Marion are already on the other side of the throne room. And <laughs> they're on their way out the door. And Robin turns to the king and says, May I obey all of your commands with equal pleasure, sire? And that got an audible laugh from me. <laughs> it's, yes, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the last line of the movie.
1: <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good mic drop.
0: It really is. It, <laughs> it ends on that note. It ends with them running into the distance and living happily ever after. And it's just such a perfect end to a perfectly charming movie. I can't find anything that I dislike about this movie.
1: It's a very charming movie. That, that's that's what I like about it. You know, it's it's very cliche, and you know what all the beats are are going to be, you know, how all the conflicts are going to get resolved, but just the aesthetic of it and, yeah, really, really the charm of it are, are very appealing.
0: And I'm okay with that because it's not pretending to be something it's not. It's not telling you it's going to be this gritty, serious tale of oppression and rebellion or whatever. It's just a fun little tale of some guy who happens to dress in tights and shoot arrows. (laughs) It's really charming.
1: Yeah, and it it feels very timeless, which I think is why it's endured so much and become a classic.
0: And it's so remarkably unoffensive as well. Mm -hmm. Like, there's so little about this movie to take offense at, and a lot of the actual stances that this movie takes, whether it be on politics or on morality are very contemporary and and good. This idea of being generous to the poor and fighting for what's right and standing up for the people who are pushed down. These are all things that will never be wrong. And that makes it really special. There's so much about this movie that was just perfect place, perfect time. The performances are amazing all the way through, from Prince John to Errol Flynn as Robin to Marion. All these performances perfectly capture the mood that they're going for. The direction is great. Michael Curtis and Errol Flynn may not have gotten (laughs) along, but Michael Curtis did a great job. The action sequences feel way ahead of their time.
1: I think that's why the other guy got fired, actually, was because his action sequences weren't exciting. Yeah, Yeah. I
0: I read that as well, where the studio looked at the action sequences and were like, these are boring. (laughs) It's the type of movie that you can recommend to anyone, and that will stand the test of time for as mm-hmm. long as movies exist. And so it's it's basically a textbook on how to make a film if you watch this movie.
1: Yeah, it's a good one.
0: It's a good one. So that's The Adventures of Robin Hood.
1: If you have a favorite swashbuckler film or a favorite swashbuckler that you'd like to tell us about, or if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, you can send us an email at, at com. We are also on Instagram at Off the Watchlist Pod.
0: Yeah, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
1: But yeah, Errol Flynn was married. <laughs> Can you imagine them being on set? It's like, oh man, long day. Can't wait to go home and tell Lilith all about it. <laughs> That's
0: so powerful. <laughs>